So, um, I want you to uh, turn in your Bibles to, if you have your Bibles, otherwise you look at the overhead, um, Revelation chapter 17. Should be an easy book to find in the Bible. It's the last book of the Bible. And we're going to look at chapter 17. I want to read just the first um, uh, eight verses of this, uh, of this chapter. Uh, I find myself more and more, and I, I think maybe Joy's getting a little tired of this, but I keep saying, you know, the older I get, the more I see such and such. And it's really true when you get into your middle age years, certain lights start going on where when you're in your 20s and your 30s, you had inklings about something, but when you get in your 40s and 50s and 60s and beyond, you kind of live life's experiences, and you go, "Oh, now that was what that was all about." And and one of the one of the things that happens when you get older, when you start thinking about your own kids and you start thinking about your grandkids, is you start uh, thinking about um, all the enticements, all the temptations, all the seductions of the world, and and we know they exist, but you start cluing in more into the subtle nature of these things and how they manifest themselves in our lives. And that's kind of what we're going to be uh, taking a look at here this morning. You know, kids, um, when I was younger, kind of like you, I was what we call catechized. I was instructed in the faith. And I remember one time after we had our catechism classes after church, and I remember an elder was leading it. And this was around, man, it must have been in the early 1970s. We're going back a long time. And he said, Boy, when I think about the temptations that you are facing, remember this, when you face temptations today, they are so many and they're so scary compared to the ones I have been facing throughout my life when I was, or when I was growing up. And I don't know why I remember that, but I did. I think 1975 com dulls in comparison to the seductions of our age. What are those seductions? Why are they dangerous? How do we deal with them? We're going to be taking a look at that from Revelation uh, chapter 17. So, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, just read through the, I'm sorry, not the first eight verses, the first six verses. And what I'd like us to do um, when we get to verse 6, I want us, and you're, you're going to, I'm working from the English Standard Version of the Bible, so if you have a, if you have a Bible in your hand, this English Standard Version, you can say this with us, or maybe it'd be better if we all look at the overhead. I want us to confess verse 6 together. Okay, so let's pay attention. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you <clears throat> the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon. The great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And then let's say these words together, verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, 
the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we'll, we'll end it at, sorry. I didn't even see that in my Bible. All right. Now, this passage shows us essential character, not the sole character, but essential character, known simply as the great prostitute. And this prostitute's inebriated. She's all drunked up. What is she drunked up with? Liquor, wine, beer? No, with blood. She's drunked up with the blood of, as we see here in verse 6, what are called the saints. Now, when you think saints, don't think Roman Catholicism, don't think Roman Catholic saints, but just think the way that the Bible thinks about, explains saints. Saints are just Christians. The hagion in the original language, the holy ones. Those have committed their lives to Christ, and they are also known as martyrs in this passage, coming from the Greek word martyreo, means to bear witness. So, in other words, these are Christians who have bore witness to Jesus all the way even unto death. They are martyrs for the faith. Which, you know, we have to ask ourselves the question, what do we really know about this? We read about it. I read a, an article this past week in a Gospel Coalition speaking about the top ten persecuting nations in the world, and probably to no one's surprise here, Afghanistan is the number one nation. Now, but what do we know about this? We read about it, but what do we know about it? What have we experienced regarding this? Some time ago, a couple months ago, if you were here, I believe it was an afternoon service, there was a pastor, uh, Winston Bosch, from a church, Jubilee Church in Ottawa, Ontario. And I remember uh, he, he was preaching, I, I really appreciate the sermon, it was on the Trinity, the Christian Trinity. And at one point in the sermon, uh, he, you, you maybe remember this if you were here, but he showed us um, a picture at one point. You guys have that? Now, you take a look at that. Kids, I want, you to, I want you to take a look at this. This is actually a sculpture by an Italian artist named Moderno. I think it's either the 1500s or the 1600s. And apparently... Uh, her name is Cecilia, and apparently, as the story goes, she was martyred in the second century. Now, kids, I want you to take a close look at her, because that's how, they, that's how they apparently buried her. You don't find people buried like that oftentimes today, at least in our Western culture. Notice that her face is down, maybe to expose what you see on her neck. Do you see that? The story goes that her executioners tried to behead her, but they couldn't finish the job. And within a few days that she had died of her wound. You notice that she is clothed very simply in a, a linen covering. And perhaps what is uh, most telling 
about the way that they buried her, I want you to take a look at how they situated her fingers on her hands. So on her left hand, you have the forefinger extended, and then on her right hand, you can't see that very well, but there are three fingers extended. You know why they did that? That's, that's to demonstrate her belief in the triune God, one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So she was, she was buried very intentionally, right? Because they knew that she bore testimony to Jesus in her life, and they wanted her to bear testimony to Jesus in her death, right? So you can take that off now, but it gives you a very interesting picture about, about regarding martyrdom. Again, what do we know about this? What do we know about this kind of front door persecution, this persecution? You know, the, the word persecution in the original language comes from the verb. The verb is dioko in the original language, which means actually to pursue. So when you think of persecution, you think of pursuing someone with intent of harming them. And sometimes that pursuit comes right at the front door where people bust down the door and they take your life for the, for the sake of your confession of Jesus. Again, what do we know about that? We know something, a form of persecution or a form of pursuit that oftentimes doesn't come through the front door, but actually it's more deadly. It's a pursuit that comes more subtly, more quietly, more stealthily, but again, more deadly. And that's the pursuit of enticements, of seductions that just kind of fall upon us like the gentle rains that we find here in Abbotsford, and they just kind of slowly sink into us. And the reason why I say that oftentimes they are more deadly is because there's not so much an effect on our physical life as on our spiritual life. They attack not so much the body, but the soul. And I want to consider that with you here this morning, and without further ado, I want to draw your attention, or your attention to this passage. Now, oftentimes you know the procedure with the way that I preach. I like to set the context, which is really important. So the context basically is this. What's the book? It's the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is a book that was written by the Apostle John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And basically what God is doing, kids, is he's revealing some things to John, a follower of Jesus, by way of a vision. A vision is like a dream that you can see. And he sees these images before him that basically tell him and the readers of this revelation what is soon to come during the days of John, but are going to come also in the distant future, our future. Okay. Now, um, according to church tradition, I don't know if you know this, but the Apostle John was the only one who was not martyred for the faith. You're not going to read about what I'm about to tell you in the Bible. These are just kind of oral traditions of the church. So maybe you've heard these things. That it was the Apostle Peter who was crucified upside down in Rome. Or it was the Apostle Paul who was beheaded in Rome. And you have the other apostles and the followers of Jesus you want to read about this, you read something interesting called the Fox's Book of Martyrs that talks about the alleged ways in which the disciples were put to death and how word kind of got around. We know that the Apostle John, probably when he was older, was exiled to an island called the Island of Patmos. 
And it's there where he received this revelation of God. And by the way, sometimes maybe you do this or maybe you've read this, but sometimes when people cite the book of Revelation, they call it the book of Revelations. It's not called the book of Revelations. It's called the book of Revelation. So it's one single revelation that God gave through his spirit to the apostle John, but has different parts to it different streams to this revelation, and, the, and where we put our foot in the stream of this revelation is chapter 17, okay? And, and like the whole book of Revelation, chapter 17, as you're reading it, you're probably thinking to yourself, what is this all about? Well, welcome to the book of Revelation, right? So the book of Revelation begs for interpretation and explanation, and chapter 17 is really no different. So let's get into 17. And what I want to do, I want to explain some of the the imagery here, I'm not going to explain everything, all the images here, but the main images. And of course, the main image here that we read in verse 1 is this woman called the great prostitute. Now, notice that she's not called just the a prostitute, she's called a great prostitute. And that's the way of John explaining that this woman's influence is very powerful and very influential and very broad. And we will see that in the passage itself. There's known as the great prostitute. Now, kids, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but a, but a prostitute is a woman who sells her body for money. Let's leave it at that. Okay? She's a woman who sells her body. And, and, and the way that she sells herself, she, she entices or she, she, tempts, she tempts men. She, what the, the, the term that we like to use is the term seduce. She, she draws them. She draws men to her. Okay, and really in this passage, what she is, is she is a symbol, because all these images are symbols, right? She's a, she's a symbol, actually, of the enticements, or the temptations, the seductions of the, of the world. So we could, she embodies the spirit of seductions in the world around us. She's alive, <laughs> and she is well. Now, if, 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 if you're not too familiar with your Bible... You, you may be somewhat shocked by what I'm about to say, but the Bible does not speak infrequently about prostitutes or prostitution. And what's interesting about the Bible and what people discover as they start learning the Bible for the first time is just, you know, the Bible is not so spiritual that it doesn't talk about the realities that we find in the world and some of the dirty and the dark stuff that we find in the world. The Bible is extremely realistic. Okay? So, in the Bible, you actually find references to literal prostitutes. So, for instance, Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 38, you have Tamar, who is a prostitute. You have a woman, Rahab, in the opening chapters of Joshua. She's a prostitute. Some commentators believe that Mary Magdalene, of whom Jesus healed of seven demons, was at one point a prostitute. There's division on that. We cannot say for sure. But regardless, the Bible speaks about prostitution in a very literal way, but sometimes the Bible speaks about prostitution in a very symbolic way, as a symbol, for instance, of God's people at one point who turned their backs on God, and God, through his prophets, basically said, you know what? You've prostituted yourself. You've, you've been seduced by all these foreign gods around you, and you have committed adultery with them. Isn't that interesting? So God is actually even speaking to his people about prostitutes. You become one. And sometimes prostitution is a symbol 
in the way that we find it here in our passage. It's a symbol of the seductions and the enticements of this world in which we are living. Remember, God is addressing his people here. Okay? Now, I'm going to spend just a little bit of time, and then I'm going to start applying some of this um, as, as, we, as we move forward. But you notice that in verse 1, it says, the great prostitute is seated on many waters. On many waters. Now, you read that and like, what in the world is that all about, right? So, sometimes what happens in the book of Revelation, it, it, it gives us a symbol and, you know, you have to either dig deeply into the Old Testament or you have to dig other places in the New Testament in order to figure out what, it, what is this symbol actually referring to. And then sometimes it's very clearly explained for us. For instance, the reference to the many waters in verse 1 is actually explained in verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So then what does this say? It's saying that the nations of this world and the peoples of this world we are living in have come under the seduction of the prostitute. They've been enticed, and they're following the prostitute. Welcome to the world in which we are living in. We not only face the seductions, but the great prostitute, her power and her influence has covered the entire planet. I mean, it's not for nothing that the Bible says that the whole of the world that we're living in is under the power of the evil one. Now, sometimes in our conservative circles, you know, we always have this kind of negative view of the world. God created this world. He made it. He loves it. There's still good in this world that we find, but at the same time, right, we find that there are a number of things that are enticements to us, just like, just like that fruit in the Garden of Eden, you know? Eve came under the seduction. So, we have this woman who's working very powerfully and influentially and broadly in this world in which we're living in. That's the first thing. The second thing that you need to notice here, then, is that this woman is not only seated on many waters, but she's riding a beast. It's called a scarlet beast. Kids, scarlet is like a, a deep kind of blood red color. And this beast is a hideous beast. It's got seven heads and ten horns, and this is actually drawing from imagery in the book of Daniel and elsewhere in the book of Revelation. I'll keep it simple. This is simply referring to the powers of the state and the darkness of state government. And so what we find here is a very close alignment or alliance between the prostitute and the government powers that be. Now, government powers are not always corrupt, but almost in every nation, and whether it be in Canada or in the U.S. where I come from, you know as you read in the stories, there's a lot of corruption within the government. And many times in the history of the world, you have the seductions and the darkness of the woman aligned with government. They work in tandem with each other. And sometimes it's actually the government through its policies that supports the seductions of the prostitute. So you have that close alignment. A third thing, without going in further detail about that, is I want you to notice how this prostitute is dressed. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of 
abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. You notice how two things are combined there? You got a woman who's looking pretty good. And you also, she has a cup in her hand. It's a gold cup. Gold cups are not tin cups. Gold cups are beautiful cups. But what's in the cups? She's filled with seductions and immorality. You know, just like I, I go back oftentimes in this passage to that very simple story of Eve with the serpent in the Garden of Eden, where it says that she saw the fruit and it looked, it said it looked good to her. And she ate and it was her undoing. Now you got this woman with a gold cup. You go, like, yeah, let me drink what's in the cup. But you drink the cup and it's poison. That's the nature of seductions that we face every day in our lives. So she's a woman who's beautiful. She looks good. She probably smells good, probably tastes good. But she is deadly. Deadly. Beware of the great prostitute. You know, um, a rather apt description, I think, of this woman is actually found in the book of Proverbs in the Bible, in the middle of the Bible. The book of Proverbs also talks about prostitution. It's a very interesting part in, in Proverbs where the idea is you have a dad who's seeking to instill wisdom in his son, okay? And this is the kind of dad where he didn't say to his son, there's the world now, beware of the world, the world is a bad place. And so we avoid it. No, what the dad did is he took the kid into the world, he says, I want you to observe this part of the world, and it appears almost as if he took his kid to the red light district and to show this kid prostitutes. So he takes the kid to the district, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to look at this woman. I want you to look at her. Okay? Observe her. See what she does with young men. You put up the book of uh, the Proverbs section there. Behold, here's the dad speaking to his son. A woman meets him, this young man, dressed like a prostitute, wily of heart. She's in the street and in the market and lies and wait at every corner. She seizes him and then kisses him. And with a bold face, she says to him, I've prepared my couch. And I have perfumed my bed. With her seductive speech and smooth talk, she persuades him, and immediately he follows her like an ox that goes to the slaughter. So the dad's saying, probably with his arm around his kid, look at her, man. She's wily of heart. Look at that young man. He's going to her. Oh, yeah, he's going in the house. You know what he's going in the house like? He's going like an ox, like a cow to the slaughter. Her way is the way of death. Is that oftentimes how you view the influence of the prostitute in your own life? The way of, the way of death. One final thing I want you to notice here is that while this woman is aligned with the state, she's identified with a city. What city is that? Verse 5, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So very clearly she's tied to Babylon. Look at verse 18 also. And the woman that you saw is the great city that we just saw as Babylon that has dominion over the kings of the earth. What's Babylon? Don't we read about that in the Old Testament somewhere? Yeah. 
Babylon is Babylon is literally what we call a synecdoche. A synecdoche is something that is a part that represents a whole. So something like this small, but it actually represents something much bigger than itself. What Babylon is, is it's a representation of all cities, and basically all civilizations, that have turned their backs on God and have become seduced by the prostitute. Okay? Now, during the days of John, it was not uncommon, we also read this in the book of Revelation, that the, the city of Babylon that represents the pride of the nations have been seduced by the prostitute was embodied in Rome itself. Rome was the city of cities during the days of John. Rome was known as the eternal city. Rome was a city of power and finance and entertainment and the sex industry. When you think of Babylon, think of Rome. And when you think of Rome, think of the big cities of this age and even the smaller cities, maybe even like Abbotsford, which has its own issues tucked away in this place where we call the buckle of the Bible belt, but depravity is everywhere. And so what Rome is, all those cities, all those civilizations, all those peoples who have turned their backs on God, been seduced by the prostitute, they are New York, Las Vegas, Toronto, Bangkok, Thailand, London, all of these are wrapped up in one, reflected in Rome, controlled by the prostitute. Now, Rome and the seductions of the prostitute are here, and they continue to thrive today. And you know how? The way that the great prostitute oftentimes works is this. She takes something good in our lives, and what she does is she, she twists it and uses it against us. This is how she works in your life. It's how she works in my life. Going back to that fruit in the Garden of Eden, Eve saw the fruit. Knew that she shouldn't eat the fruit. But the Bible says very clearly that the fruit looked very good to her. Now, fruit in itself is not a bad thing. It's part of God's good creation. But what the, what the devil did with Eve in the beginning is take something that was good and turn it against her so that even though she knew the prohibition of God not to eat, she took it anyway, and it was her undoing. That's exactly what God does with us. How does he do that? Let me give you some examples. Especially, I suppose it can happen to women, and it does, but I think especially to men, and this deal with something like uh, as simple as work. You know, God, God gives us work, and he gives us work, although it's not always the case, but he gives us work for our satisfaction. Oftentimes is it not the case, however, that in the midst of our work, before we know it, months and years go by and we start to get so absorbed in our work that it ends up undermining, first and foremost, our relationship with Christ, but also with our wives and also with our children. I guarantee, well, I shouldn't say this, but I think it's a pretty safe bet that when you have men, perhaps, 
who are on their deathbed, maybe let's say in hospice and they're in their 70s or in their 80s, they're not laying there thinking to themselves or saying out loud, you know, if I could have only got this one more project done before I die, I, I would die happy. They never say that. They say, if, if, I, if, if I only would have spent more time with my wives and also with my children. But when you're young, you're middle-aged, and you're wrapped up in your work before you know it, that very good created thing that God meant for your satisfaction ends up consuming you and be, becomes your undoing. Give you a few more examples. How about in the area of which is obviously here in our text in the, the area of sex? God gives us sex as part of the part of the originally the good creation. And, and it's his intention that it be enjoyed within the marriage bond. But how many times don't people get wrapped into something that was designed for their good, but it ends up turning south for them because they start engaging in other things? in sexual matters that, that ends up just simply becoming their undoing. I mean, do I really have to go explain in detail the things that you can find on the internet? Or these, uh, what do you, you know, when I first heard about these visual devices, right, that you can wear, I wore one of them once. There was a missionary who came to our church back in Phoenix, and he had a show to show me on here, and it's all of a sudden it's like you're there on the spot, right, where they're using this for pornography now. I mean... So when that elder was talking about 1975, all the seductions that, oh, you kids are really facing today, that's nothing compared to what you younger people are facing today. It's the way of death. Or how about in the, I'll be real quick with these, education. Education is a good thing. We need to learn together, right? Praise God for Christian universities are sound. But when you're younger and you go to the secular university, you're, you're, you're getting all kinds of things in the classroom that you may sense this is not right, and maybe they're not, but oh, some of those arguments are so convincing, and it's like, it's like the instructor's just passing out that lure, and it's going past the fish like this. A lure always looks good. We used to fish, you know, when I was younger, we used to fish like uh, northern pike, and we always use these daredevils that would just go like this to the water, you know, you could see them, they would glisten, and the fish, it was just like, they couldn't take it, and they had to, you know, before you knew it, you had a fish on your line the way it is with us. Work, sex, education, food, drink, um, money, retirement portfolios. I mean, we could just keep going on and on. Good things that seductress uses against us, and before we know it, not only is Christ being pushed to the margins, he's being pushed out altogether. There's a word that's being used for a lot of younger people today. It's called deconstruction. You know what deconstruction is? It's where younger people in their lives, and they're usually in their 20s, where they grew up kind of basically in the church, but their faith starts to become deconstructed. That is, it's starting to be dismantled bit by bit by bit. And oftentimes, it's, and I always say this, younger people don't wake up one day um, and, and wake up on the wrong side of the bed and they're in a bad mood, and they just say to themselves one day, you know what, I think I'm done with Jesus. I think I'm done with the Christian faith. It doesn't work like that. Usually the Christian faith is dismantled bit by bit by bit, like on my coat, if there are some strands, um, clothing strands, I can just go like this, and before you know it, you know, and it starts disintegrating altogether. How often isn't that the case with deconstruction? The prostitute is everywhere in our lives. 
And she comes knocking. And the question is, are we going to open up to her? Or are we going to walk away? When I, when I was in the military, this story goes back about 40 years ago. I was in Fort Lee, Virginia. And there was a weekend that we had off, which was unusual. They allowed us to get off the base. A lot of guys would get off the base, and they'd party up for a weekend. And there was a number of guys they wanted to hang out with. And I wasn't so sanctified at the time, but I just wanted to be by myself. I went to a hotel, and I got in that hotel, Got the room. When I got there, turned on the TV, just started wa- uh, watching TV. Before I know it, got this. So I go to the door, and open the door, and there's this woman. And I'm like, and honestly, I'm not lying here. I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't think she was who she was. First thing she said is, do you, do you mind if I come in and just use your phone? There were no cell phones at the time. This was the early 80s. I said, yeah, whatever. Come on in, use the phone. And I sat down on the bed, and I was continuing to watch my, my uh, show. And she, she, she picks up the receiver, and then she puts it down. And then she came over, and she sat down beside me. And I won't go into details here, but she propositioned me what she could do for so much amount of money. And, uh, well, you probably never had a pastor talk to you like this before, but it was a reality. She sat down, she talked, and, you know, young, young people, when you think of the seductions of the world, or even with women, when you face that, you have a moment. You have just one moment to decide, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to say yes? Are you going to say no? Because I tell you, I was not in a good spiritual state at that point. And to tell you the truth, something could have very easily happened. Nobody would have known about it, probably. And I just said to her, not interested. And she plied her wares again. I said, not interested. So she got up. She went to the door. She turned around and said, well, if you change your mind, I'll be in the area for a while. And she was gone. I think about that story upon occasion, especially with the pastors like this. Because every one of us, I don't care how young you are, how old you are, and you face the seductions of the world, by basically, even as an old person to the day that you die, they come knocking. And the question that we all have to face, especially those of us who are younger, is, man, are we gonna, am I going to open up that door or not? The question you have to ask yourself here this morning is, do you want to live or you want to die? Because it's either or. You want to live, you're going to die. And for some of us here, because we don't know each other's stories or what's going on in our lives right now, the woman may already be in the room. You going to tell her to leave? What happens if she propositions you again? You going to tell her to leave? You know, honestly, there are times when we don't. We don't tell her to leave. We fall to our enticements. Welcome to the Christian life. Why do we fall to her enticements? Here's something for you to remember. We don't fall to her enticements because the enticements are so strong. 
We fall to her enticements because our faith is so weak. So what do we do? I want to leave you three things very quickly. If a great prostitute has come into your life and she has a hold of some corner of your life, God calls you to do three things. They're really quite simple. Recognize it. Stop denying it or making excuses for it. Come to grips with it. And it can be just between you and your God. Come to grips with it. Deal with the sin. Repent of the sin. And draw near to Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. Jesus never turns away a repentant sinner. We even, listen, we even find that with prostitutes in the Bible. Rahab, the Bible clearly says she was a prostitute. Do you know that Rahab finds herself in the family tree of Jesus Christ, of all things? There is a woman in Luke 7 who was called a sinner. And she was a woman who some believe that she's caught in some form of sexual immorality, even pro- probably prostitution, and yet she comes repentantly to Jesus. And she weeps, and she weeps on his feet, and she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. And Jesus doesn't push her away and say, what are you doing? He receives her, and he says to Simon, a Pharisee, he says, this woman loves much, therefore she's been forgiven much. If Jesus can forgive prostitutes, Cannot Jesus forgive us and put us in a different direction? So repent, draw near to Jesus. Secondly, very simply, pray for help. And please don't think that Jesus, as you bring even the most heinous of sins before him, will, will, will say, you know what, uh, you, you've just, you just crossed a line. Or listen, that's, that's something that's so gross, I cannot even, I cannot even identify with that. Uh-uh. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted and seduced in all things, everything, yet without sin. That's the difference between you and me and Jesus. He never sinned. But the thing that we have in common is that he was seduced. Draw near to him. He identifies with you. He's the intercessor. Draw near to him. And then thirdly, this. Not only pray, not only ask for help, not only repent, but be intentional. God gives us the very things, the very tools that we need to fight the seductions of the great prostitute in our lives. And what are they? I don't have to go into great detail because the very things that we've been covering in our spiritual formation series. God says, listen, I've given you people, your brothers and sisters in Christ. I've given you Jesus himself. I've given you the church. I've given you preaching." I've given you sacraments. I've given you, even in really dire cases, I give you fasting. I've given you prayer. And, and many times in, in the ministry where, where people sometimes are struggling, they come to me and we start talking, I begin to realize something that the very people who keep falling to the seductress are the people who really rarely show up for worship. Or, and you gauge their prayer life, it's almost non-existent. Or how much, how much time do they spend just engaging some aspect of the Scriptures? And you just think it's very, very little. And I'm like, well then, is it a surprise to you? If you're not putting nutrition in the body, is it a surprise to you that you're so sick? Draw near to the Lord. He's given you tools. Embrace them to reorder your loves in order that you might draw near to Him and live the kind of life and flourishing that he's 
He's desiring to give us, right? So let's together, we join hands in this, and let's, let's, let's not follow the prostitute. Let's follow our husband, Christ, the great bridegroom of his bride, you and me. That's the way of joy. It's the way of life. It's the way of life. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, Lord, that though some of the images of our passage this morning are disturbing, even for some of us maybe frightening, there are also images, Lord, that each and every one of us in our own way and to varying degrees can identify with. Father, we want to be holy. We want to be imitators of Jesus. We want to be followers of Jesus. We want to glory and take great joy in the gospel. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us in that, to view this world as a wonderful place in which to live, and yet a world that carries many dangers for us. Oh, God, preserve our souls, we ask. And grant when that day comes, when we may enter into glory at different stages as we are of different ages now, grant, O Lord, that when we come together, each and every one of us, small children, adults, older individuals, may when that time comes, rejoice with each other that we have gathered together around the marriage feast of the Lamb, those who have overcome by your grace and the power of Jesus. God, grant that we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.